0: With Jared Hindmarsh, but of a different subject today those encounters with whales that make a well regaled tale. And there are quite a few of them. we have been quite whaling over the years, maybe obvious.
1: Jared, uh, um, these are whale stories. Yeah, I thought it would be interesting, Graham, this week to do three. Whale stories pertaining to New Zealand ocean-going yachts, so the sort of modern stories from the 70s and 80s, but they all have a common denominator because these boats, three boats, were all sunk by whales somewhere around the world. You know, basically they were head butted or sort of flailing flukes, but direct collisions or whatever. And it doesn't take much to sink a boat once a whale gets going. You know, I remember talking to some yachties recently. They said there's three things you've got to watch out for in the ocean there's ships coming your way. To avoid them, there's containers in the ocean that fall off at a remarkable pace these days. They just float with their point sticking out. You can never usually see them. And the other thing, of course, is whales. You know, the early whalers used to say, they used to call the whale's tail or its flukes, They used to call it the hand of God, because one slap and you were into the afterlife, just like that. You know, when we're talking about whales, they're about three tons for every meter, a big whale. It's a lot of weight and a lot of inertia in the water. No wonder we have so many stories of people coming to grief with whales. And they can cop an attitude. Yeah, they can too. And for some reason, they don't seem to regard yachts which don't have motors as an obstacle. They'll just sail through, and if they hit them... Well, that's part and parcel of the game. Yeah, it's interesting. Ah. But we can't get away without saying something about our whaling history. The whalers were the first to follow Cook, you know, within thirty years of Cook they were all around our seas and many of our settlements were formed purely from whaling. You know, that was the initial reason they got set up. Near whaling and sealing. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And the establishment of Rarika you know now Russell of course is a port, and Riverton, they purely came out of whaling. We have a lot of little stories too, there's the scrimshaw of a whale tooth, now it's in the Butler Point Whaling Museum in Manganui there, but the little sign, I've seen this, it states that there were, uh, it was taken from a whale that flipped a boat, killing two of the crew in 1850. Is that Manganui, the northern version? Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah. There were fortunes to be made in whaling, especially with lamp oil and, and lubricating oil. But the big one was lubricating oil and lamp oil. They were really the big things. But there were lots of other things too. Whale bone corsets, even umbrella ribs got made from the baleen and stuff. You know, we couldn't get enough whales in the world. But it all kind of crashed when oil was first extracted from oil springs in Ontario, 1858. There was a commodity. It just sort of crashed, you know. And by 1860, really, there were only small-scale endeavours that lasted until 1964. Now, that was when the last whale which was a bull sperm whale, was gun harpooned off the Kaikoura coast. Now, that was on December the 21st, 1964. And Trevor Norton has the sort of infamous distinction of getting that whale. And that was the last whale killed from a New Zealand boat. Mm. Not that long ago, is it, really? No, and to think now, these uh, strandings we have, say, at Fairwell Spit, Doc's main job is to cope with people falling in love with their whale, and they have to watch for kids going off and drowning while their parents bond with a whale, you know. And,
0: oh, heavens,
1: really. Yeah, look, honestly, Graham, our attitudes have polarised, you know, completely gone 180 degrees just over that 50 or 60 years it's quite astounding how quickly the whole temper of the world can change of course you know. Yeah, Yeah. that is fascinating. I didn't know that
0: was a thing but I can certainly see how it would happen and you know with the
1: current feelings towards whales. Yeah, that's right. And Joe Hellaby from Picton, his mother was the only woman I've ever heard of who's driven a chaser to successfully bag a whale in the world, actually. But they're a tough lot, these whaling families, especially from Tory Channel, T-Awa-E-T. Now, the early whalers always called it Tar-White, and that's just inside Queen Charlotte Sound from Cook Strait. It was really the birth of whaling Jackie Gard set that up, and it was eventually taken over by the Pirano family. They all operated out of there. They're the most well-known. I think they started in 1911. But they pioneered speedboats in New Zealand. You know, Graham, while we're on the subject of boats today, I can't not talk about these launches. By the 1940s, they were capable of 40 knots. Now, this was unheard of. You know, when you went out in a boat, you only went about 10 or 12 knots with an engine. Suddenly, these guys were putting big car engines and diesel engines and whatever into these boats, and it was hell of a dangerous work, especially when you had to lance the flying whale to kill it, you know, and that was the time it would thrash out with its flukes and demolish your boat. Uh, I've had a little bit to do with one boat, Bob Milletta, my cousin on Durville, um Late Bob Maletta now he kept the last whale boat. He bought it as a farm tender on White Eye Station on Durville Island. It was formerly the Bellina 2 and he renamed it the Miss White Eye, but it was an eleven meter cowrie whale chaser and it was owned by the Piranos. He bought it for three thousand five hundred pounds, quite a big sum back in nineteen sixty-four when they shut down. And Bob knew the Piranos very well. He used to go and see them quite a lot. He always bought back chunks of whale meat for his dogs, one foot cubes of whale meat. He'd just put them on the deck and when he got back to Waitai at the end of the day on Durville, he'd just leave them there till the following morning to unload them. But when he used to go back out to the boat, there'd be like five or six great white sharks (laughs) patrolling around it, of course, the blood had oozed out into the water. He said it was always a very careful time rowing out, you know, because if you fall out, you know, they were ready to go. Bob knew the Piranos as well, as I said, and he used to go up there, but uh, this boat was very distinctive in its day, and it had a muzzle-loading harpoon gun mounted on the bow, and Bob took that off. but. Uh, They were actually, in their later years, these guns were modified from anti-aircraft guns. And in the early days, they were actually muzzle-loaded. And they used to put the shot in, and they used to get six pages of the weekly news. Now, six pages of the weekly news was perfect to ram in there on top of the gunpowder. And then you loaded your harpoon on top of that and then you took off. Now, the boat had three watertight compartments, and the rear compartment carries 300 fathoms of rope, which was 1,800 feet, loosely coiled in case the whale sounded, because as soon as it was harpooned, of course, it used to go down, and this rope used to just shoot out, and just from the tiny cockpit with a windscreen to protect it, you'd roar along at 40 knots, slowly closing in on this poor harpooned whale. Oh, man. I always used to be amazed how he started this boat. It was two-stroke turbocharged six-cylinder GM diesel. That might mean something to some people, but it used to produce 350 horsepower. Now, this was a boat from the 30s and 40s. Wow initially you had to know the exact amount of ether to pour into the manifold before the starter sort of grinded it into life and then there'd be this bellowing roar and this grunty power like you just wouldn't appreciate it it used to be the most fantastic thing to drive down to french Pass. there was no such thing as air muffs on the boat And they'd never have anything like great silences because that would just slow everything down. These guys were into it. But you know what, the thing about the Piranos that sort of did them in, I always thought, I think this is quite a personal thing, they used to make it a personal thing. Who spotted the whale? They'd get an 11-shilling bonus just for spotting the whale from West Head, which is at the top of Tory Channel, 91 metres. And then there'd be bonuses for kidding the whale. And the Pirano brothers ended up in deep competition for these whales. It was kind of like a sad thing, really. It really was. Oh, the competition split them apart. Yeah, and they had upwards of 50 seasonal workers, dangerous work. You know, there was always these huge dangerous cables always under strain, and there was these super sharp flensing knives and blubber spades, and you'd always be cutting on this slippery environment. Oh, my goodness.
0: Yeah, it would be dangerous, although... Uh, If I had to pick a side, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be the human than the whale.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, initially, of course, radio telephones made it. The advent of the radio telephone made it just so easy because someone could be watching from a high vantage point and directing the boat so easily. But before that, they used to have tussock bushes ready to light If the whale diverted left, they'd light the tussock on the left, and if it sounded, they'd put it out straight away. They knew exactly what to do, you know, and this is the way it worked. But anyway, these are all the old stories of whales. But really, I think it's an unknown number of New Zealanders have learnt this to their cost, that a yacht versus a whale is an unequal contest. It really is. And unknown because from time to time, yachts just simply disappear. But we do have three good examples of recent times of survivors that have tackled a whale and invariably lost and luckily came out to tell their story.
0: Right. We will take a break. And when we return, the story of Matuku, The first of three stories, whale encounters where people have lived to tell the tale. Who knows how many of those encounters where yachts have just disappeared, never to be seen again, have been whale encounters as well. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. This week, three whale tales. The interaction between vessel and big bloody animal in the water. And this story from 1968. These are relatively modern stories, and I suppose only get told because people survived. Obviously, many who knows how many uh, don't get regaled because nobody survives because they can be very destructive animals at sea. Your whale, and this is a ship from '68.
1: Yeah, that's right. It was the 9th of December, 1968. It was a Monday now. The Mataku was skippered by Kim Cox. He was a Wellington dentist, and it was his life dream, actually, to take off in this boat with a six-man crew. They would have all normally been at work that Monday, but thus there was um, no ordinary Monday for them. They were off to compete in one of yachting's Blue Water classics in the South Pacific, the Sydney to Hobart race. Now, The Mataku was a, for those who know about yachts, it was a John Spencer-designed plywood yacht, perfect for what it was being used for. And they took off from Wellington, brilliant conditions. They got the spinnaker going, and they had big following seas out into Cook Strait, and they just flew out of Cook Strait. Of course, there's always that thing with yachting. You don't know what's around the corner. By the time they got to Stevens Island, there wasn't a hint of a breeze, so they sat there for quite a while. Next few days, in fact, the wind varied, and it came back, and they handled a sort of a windward track, and there were very confused seas, but they felt they were making reasonable progress at sort of eight knots or so and Cox was really pleased with the design, actually, and it was the first ocean passage of this boat. Now, they maintained a regular radio schedule with two other yachts heading for Sydney. Also, this was the Cirrus of Auckland and the Jupiter. Now, these yachts always keep in communications, of course. They had very good reception on the airwaves, and all the spirits were high on the boat, They were even touching 14 to 15 knots as they sped down the swells and they they were sure they were going to get to Sydney quite quickly, just a few days. Now, their only company for the past couple of days had been these large pods of whales on the annual migration south. Now, they had to alter course several times to avoid them and Cox noted, actually, that the whales seemed unaware of the yacht until they came very near, and it was probably because of the speed of the boat, but also the silence of it approaching. Now, on Saturday, that was the day after Black Friday, as they noted, the wind had held from the south as they romped along under a spinnaker, and the only disquieting thing for them that day was they couldn't raise Wellington Radio to give their position, so they tried Auckland radio, but again without success. So Cox decided to wait until evening for better atmospheric conditions and Sydney radio would be well within range by then and they'd be able to give their position then. But at about 2.30pm in the afternoon, Sven Satra, he was on the helm, a large pod of whales surfaced near the boat. Now this time they surrounded the yacht now everyone was awake of course and Swaton immediately shouted for them all to come up on deck to witness this sort of threatening spectacle if you like. As they were all getting out the yacht lurched up and it was followed by this big grinding crash and they all looked behind and surfacing in their wake was this big unseen whale that they hadn't spotted and they thought they were all on the sides of the boat. Now Sartre brought their attention back to the yacht with a startled yell. He yelled out, I've lost the rudder. And the helmsman was standing in the cockpit there looking ridiculous, waving the tiller around with no effect now. Cox looked down the companionway, and the cabin below was dry, so they knew that it wasn't perhaps so serious immediately. Now they immediately brought down the sails and the spinnaker and the mainsail, and other members of the crew unleashed the life raft and they placed survival rations nearby just in case. Now the yacht came to a sandstill, and uh, Cox. Went down to inspect the damage. Now he found water pouring in, and in the collision, the steel skeg and rudder had been torn completely off the yacht, and the bolts attaching them had been ripped right out of their frames and just ripped part of the boat out. Now the gash was a metre and a half near the stern, and basically the Tasman Sea was just surging in, and the boat was going down fast. Now The radio operator, Frank Johnson, he sent out two quick mayday distress calls and then the radio just plunged underwater and he just managed to get back up on deck. Within basically seconds of that mayday call, the sea was at deck level and the yacht was just sinking below their feet. Now it seemed an agonising long time to inflate the life raft as the boat was below the water level basically and the crew were in danger of being dragged under by the sinking yacht and they had to cut through the cord attaching the life raft to the yacht but it was being carried down with the sinking boat anyway they got it free. And the rigging as the boat was tipping as well, as threatened to rip the fragile rubber of the life raft. Anyway, the much shoving and heaving, and they finally managed to break clear of the boat, the only damage being one dislocated shoulder amongst the crew. Now, they just all took stock in the life raft there. Their minds were spinning. And it was less than five minutes since the collision and only two since they had dropped the sails. They went around picking up floating vegetables near the raft. They collected what they could from the sea. And in a mad scramble, they'd lost nearly everything, all their supplies. They sorted out their findings. They sorted through what they picked up. There was 14 onions, 4 carrots and no water. Oh, Lack of food didn't concern them, but they knew that they wouldn't last long without water.
0: Yeah, well, water's the thing, isn't it?
1: Always, always. Now, this rubber life raft, it was designed for eight. It was damn uncomfortable for seven men. They weren't able to stretch their legs. They all had cramped muscles. And the first night in the raft, they collected about, luckily, one and a half litres of rainwater in a mess tin that they had now. They did not touch it for several days because they were licking the condensation on the inside of the raft canopy, so it kept their thirst satisfied. But uh, Sunday dawned, their spirits were high. All they could do was wait and hope like hell that maybe their May Day signal had been received. But remember their two previous attempts at relaying their position had gone unanswered. And they realised that maybe the Cirrus and the Jupiter would raise the alarm. Hopefully one of those other yachts leaving for the race as well could have known. But anyway, they were doubtful about the May Day call. If it had not been successful, a search wouldn't, wouldn't be launched for them until about the 23rd of December when Cirrus and Jupiter reached Sydney and they found they hadn't made... That was about six days...
0: Yeah, it would be the worrisome thing because they had no confirmation it had been received at all, and fair reason to think that it may not have been.
1: Yeah, that's right. And they, they, uh, you know, the Tasman has a reasonable amount of traffic. They kept day and night a search for for ships and aircraft and. By the fourth day in the raft they'd sighted three aircraft but every time the flares were ready for firing the planes had disappeared into the clouds and no ships passed their way and there was sort of no signs of depression or starvation amongst the crew but they were always facing a sort of grim reminder about their resources of water the weather warmed up after about the fourth day and suddenly they had no condensation. and so they had to dip into their stored rainwater. Each man only took a few mouthfuls, and that was it. They had to ration it out. They were showing signs of exhaustion, and it was obviously they to have to double their daily ration of water. Now, unless it rained again, the water would, would only last till the 22nd of December. Of course, when you're in a raft, every detail is discussed, and they would know exactly how much water they had for how long, and the, the discussion was always about their chances of survival. Now, um, 19th of December, one of the crew suddenly blurted out he placed a bet that they would see a ship within half an hour now believe it or not to everyone's delight and absolute amazement the lookout called out that there was a tanker on the horizon now they were just absolutely near hysteria about this they fired off their flares only one parachute flare arched into the air and the tanker immediately flashed three lights to tell them they'd been sighted and then altered course for the raft. Now, it took an hour for the British Queen, it was the tanker, to manoeuvre close enough for them to paddle the raft to the ship. And there was this huge heaving swell and dropping up and down about three or four metres. But as Cox said, it was a miracle we were rescued But only after he'd talked to the captain of the British Queen did he realise what a miracle it really was because the tanker wasn't even supposed to be in that patch of ocean only because it was delayed a couple of days that it had taken a shortcut from the normal route. So, you know, they probably would have just been fatalities out there if that ship hadn't sighted them. So
0: had the May Day signal been received no
1: none of them it was purely this british queen that saw them that's how lucky they are oh heavens and on the way home through auckland kim coxey ordered another yacht from john spencer which he named savant actually and Mm. together they campaigned successfully in many of the south pacific ocean yacht races And the radio operator, Frank Johnson, he didn't survive the sea for long, actually. He fell overboard from the sloop Rarimai in Cook Strait in 1976 and drowned. You know, I always think it's just one of those tales, Graham. I always think these yachties, these ocean-going yachties, are damn good outsider characters, actually, because they're, they're quite exceptional people, pitting their lives against the ocean like that.
0: Yeah, doesn't come without its perils. As we well know. All right, uh, another whale yacht encounter when we return. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. Whale tales today. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. Uh, of the animal kingdom, we're talking whales. And people who encounter them, they can be very destructive things. Uh, at sea, a huge big whale versus a yacht. And this, another relatively modern tale, the story of Chris Kells. C E L S, 26 year old Aucklander, and he was bringing his
1: yacht home from Cape Town. That's right, he's an adventurous young chap. He'd been working as a mate on South African coastal boats for a few years in the late 1960s. He was from Auckland originally. Yeah, he found over there an abandoned yacht. It was only six metres long, only 18, 19 feet in Cape Town. Now, he spent several months, became his passion and $2,000 rebuilding the yacht, and his intention was to sail it back to New Zealand by way of South America. Now, his story is quite remarkable. How he survived, I'll never know. But after a year in Trinidad, Kell sailed for Panama, he entered the Pacific Ocean on the 23rd of January 1972, bound for the Galapagos Islands, which were a thousand nautical miles away, and that voyage usually takes about two weeks. Now, Kells encountered impossible sailing conditions, he said. He hit a huge calm and drifted in one spot for two weeks, going absolutely nowhere. He was still drifting as he began the 48th day of the voyage, in the early morning darkness of 9th of March, the yacht bumped into a humpback whale floating on the surface of the ocean. Now, this whale, which was about nearly twice as long as the yacht, suddenly lashed out with its tail, and it wasn't a very big yacht, Graham, only talking about 19 feet, anyway, it split the hole clean open below the waterline. Now, Kel said, I worked the pumps for about five hours, but the hole got wider. And finally, with the yacht sinking under him, Kells prepared to go overboard. Now, he took with him a plastic case containing the ship's log, some papers, and a small container of water. And he was dressed in shorts and a life jacket now. He was hoping to get a little life raft out. It just happened so quickly, and he wasn't expecting it. The yacht went down in seconds, leaving him just floating
0: in the middle of the ocean. Oh, God. Bob, bob, bobbing around, life jacket, a little bit of water, and some reading material.
1: Yeah, big deal, isn't it? The reading material. Yeah. Anyway, during the first day, Kells thought he was going to die. He assessed it all, and he went to his mind. He was convinced that... He wasn't thinking too far ahead. But his big regret really was the loss of his lovely little yacht that he loved so much. And he said, I wasn't worried about sharks. In fact, I hadn't seen one during the whole time I was floating. The only things I saw were large turtles. Hmm. So anyway, he he did fall asleep for the first time after a day and a half or so. So just enough to let his water container drift away. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's just crazy, isn't it? But the thing is, in
0: his situation, it would be hoping against hope, wouldn't it, for rescue? He didn't get a message out saying, Mayday, he's in the middle of an ocean.
1: Yeah, just a crazy story, isn't it? And some of these yachties you never hear of again, how they died, oh my goodness. And his thirst, of course, soon began to torment him. And by the third day, he was past care and he said, my tongue was swollen, I was burned on the face, my lips were blistered and cold, and I was frozen from the neck down. And then came a miracle, an absolute miracle, Graham. How many days has he been bobbing around? Uh, four days. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, just bobbing there. And in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, oh my goodness, and, you know, out from the Galapagos Island somewhere... Now, the Mill pond conditions luckily lasted throughout the day, the fourth day that he was there, and he suddenly heard the engines of a boat. And he said the water was like a sort of big bathtub. Anyway, he took out a packet of pencil flares and he fired one that he had. And then out of the blue, a boat came out of view and he fired another. And it was the crew of an Ecuadorian crayfishing boat who had gone way out of their scene to to investigate some new reefs. And they pulled him out of the water, basically three to four days floating in the Pacific Ocean. And three weeks later, he flew home to New Zealand to tell that remarkable story. Oh,
0: what a miraculous occasion there. All right. Our final whale-yacht interface... With near tragic uh, consequences when we return. Outsiders with Jared Heinmarsh. Whale tales today. Outsiders with Jared Heinmarsh, author of the book of the same name. Go and get it immediately. And Kahurangi stories as well. Uh, I think two editions of those.
1: Am I right, Jared? Yeah, that's right. Kahurangi calling and Kahurangi.
0: I like Kahawai too. That's a neat book about our fish. Uh, In 1979. Uh, The story of Snow White, to continue this theme, of whales interacting with vessels at sea very destructively. And, as we've stated, who knows how many stories don't get told because nobody survives. These are near miraculous stories. Uh, So, Snow White,
1: 79. Yeah, that's right. Snow White, it was a 13-metre Auckland sloop. And it competed in 1979 in the Auckland to La Toka Yacht Race. Uh, after that, the crew spent a week cruising in, uh, around Nandi. What's a sloop? I, I mean, even after all the Scott Watson business, I still don't know the difference. Oh, a sloop is a, um, it's got one mainsail and one jib out the front. Oh. And I, when I... it has two, it's a cutter. All right. What's a catch? And a catch is two masts, a smaller one behind the main mast. Okay. That's a uh, 2 mastered boat. Thank you. Very good. Okay, now Snow White sailed for home on the 28th of May. The conditions were fine and sunny, and the skipper for the voyage to New Zealand was Ken Searle. Now, he was an offshore yachtsman with 30 years of sailing experience, so uh, really experienced on the ocean. Now, June the 1st, Snow White and her seven dwarfs as the crew were were laughed about themselves. There were seven of them. Yeah, seven crew, yeah. Lovely. They had a bit of a joke about that everywhere they went, but anyway, they were about halfway home and they reported their position on an early morning radio schedule. Those not on watch, they all prepared to get some rest. Everything was going okay. Now, Searle was just settling down in the bunk when they heard this almighty crack and felt it and absolutely sent him scrambling for the deck. Now, the mast and rigging were still standing, he was happy about that, but the helmsman, Reece Davies, he was picking himself up from where he'd been thrown and they couldn't believe their eyes because a stern Lifeless in the water with blood streaming from a gash in its head was a whale 30 to 40 metres in length. It was out to it, Graham. It had just knocked itself out.
0: That's a sizable animal, isn't it? 30 to 40 metres.
1: Yeah, it is. Now, Searle clambered below and our feet were hit, immediately hit the water, which were over the floorboards of the yacht already. And when the whale had struck, the rudder, the whale, had also hold the hull of the boat. Now, Searle yelled for life rafts to be made ready and sprung to the radio immediately. And his mayday calls picked up by Wellington Radio. Now, that was a bit lucky, wasn't it? You know, these mayday calls just go out into the air and sometimes they get picked up and sometimes they don't. And he confirmed their position now. The six other crew members were were passing up kit bags and food, plus the emergency bleeper. And they were quite well equipped, this yacht, and the water was now up to knee level. This was quick, this occurrence. Now, Searle told Wellington that he could smell chlorine gas as the salt water reached the top of the batteries. And the operator's last words were, get into the life rafts, good luck. Now Searle found the yacht radio dead when he tried to reply. The other six were in the life rafts and they quickly cast off. Four minutes later the ocean racers slid beneath the waves in front of them and uh, it was only 14 minutes elapsed since the moment the whale hit the snow white before she actually sunk from sight. We had a few more minutes than the last ones actually. Now They'd barely settled into their life rafts before a new danger threat. They, they were drifting down on three whales which were swimming close together past them. They had a drogue on board, which is a sort of uh, underwater balloon, if you like. That was sent overboard to slow their drift so they could sort of widen the gap between these whales. The last thing they wanted to be sunk in the life raft as well. Anyway, they didn't expect a rescue no way they'd get a rescue plane overhead for at least four hours, so they turned on their emergency bleeper as a precaution and and it was one PM about three and a half hours later they sighted a RNZAF Hercules at one PM. It was two nautical miles away. They attracted its attention with a handheld flare and an orange smoke signal and soon the babysitting job, as the searchers call it, was taken over by an Orion aircraft which came over and circled them continuously. It dropped something to leeward of the rafts, and as they paddled towards it, one of the crew absolutely flopped back into the body of the life raft because he pointed at it and said, sharks, sharks, and sure enough, cruising right around them, these large Sinister grey shapes that had just been waiting for something out of that boat. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, one of the Orions dropped another bleeper, which had the capability of a two-way radio. They paddled up and got that. And they learned that a Littleton yacht, which was called Foxy Lady 2, was on her way home from the yacht race too. It should reach them early the following morning.
0: Auckland to Laotoka yacht race, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right, in uh, Fiji there. The Union Steamship Company's freighter, Marama, was also on its way from Tonga to Auckland. That had been diverted as well, so they were well and truly saved. Now, shortly before 11am the next day, they sighted a sail on the horizon, and the red hull of the Foxy Lady 2 appeared, and they clamoured aboard that yacht. And then the Marima as well, the um, Union Steamship Company's freighter, appeared on the horizon. And they positioned the freighter to windward so that they could get a bit of uh, protection from the elements. And the seamen launched a lifeboat, and the seven survivors, the seven dwarfs of the Snow White, were soon homeward bound again. So that was yet another whale story, Graham. But how many do we know that have never been solved? These yachts that just mysteriously disappear. You know, they could hit a container, but the chances are they hit a whale.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah, we'll never know. But uh, I suppose the, the most famous story, of course, and it was covered by John McChrystal's shipwreck tales, the story of the Essex, which was the inspiration for Moby Dick. What a story. That was an angry whale that really had a go at the Essex, sunk the damn thing, and probably the most horrific of uh, the shipwreck tales that I've ever heard. Um, They were found gnawing on each other's bones.
1: Oh, what a terrible thing. Whales have made some of the most fantastic stories. I mean, some of them are so unbelievable they can't possibly be true. You know, the one of a whale actually eating a whaler, uh, swallowing him and uh, this is from Nantucket, actually, Uh, never been substantiated, but he coughed him out after two days. He was almost snow white from the gastric acid. He'd been flailing around in its stomach with the fish and everything else for two days, and he'd never lived to very long. He was just incredibly sickly from the time he got regurgitated. I wouldn't say that's true, but these are sort of some of the tales that have come out from whale Encounters. But Graham, there's one I'm going to have to solicit a reply from the audience if there is. Anyone know anything about this? I've heard from three different sources this tale about a sperm whale that was beached in New Zealand, which was often a great occasion, actually, because people could uh, boil down the whale for oil or whatever. Sometimes settlers would knock off and come down to the water to help themselves to the whale meat or whatever. Yeah,
0: well, it would be a great
1: bonus because a lot of
0: energy and endeavor and bravery is spent getting these things. If one washes up, oh, thank goodness.
1: Yeah, that's right, and they were sources of jubilation. Uh, certainly at Puponga and Golden Bay where these strandings of happened since time memorial really. You know, the early settlers would all stop work and rush out with their axes and knives and everything and just help themselves. But anyway, this now I've heard this is in three three different locations, which makes it possibly, you know, slightly improbable. I don't know, but the this huge sperm whale was on the beach. The tide had gone out, and this farmer was determined to get this whale up onto his paddock. Now whereabouts uh uh in general is this happening? Three different locations one Otago, one New Plymouth, and one on the west coast. So, oh heavens, okay, so this isn't a cluster. <laughs> no, it's not a cluster, it's the same tale, but
0: ah. the location
1: has changed. Now, now it's sort of a, got a sort of slight reputability to it as well because some of the detail is quite interesting. Anyway, the farmer, the, the crux of the story is the farmer with a large crowd gathering gets 14 of his oxen down and he Gets all yoked up and the bridles and everything, and he ties the, the oxen up to the tail. And he gets them, he gets his whip out, and he starts whipping them. Pull the whale up, and as the whale's being pulled, it comes alive and flaps around with the incoming tide, and pulls the oxen out to sea, never to be seen again. Oh, really? That's exactly. Is this true or not? How? Now, if I've heard it from three different sources, I'd like to know. Is there anyone out there who can substantiate this tale? Because I don't think I believe it.
0: It's not beyond the realms of possibility. These animals are tethered to the tail, You'd, and if they were being um, flung about, it would be a very brave person indeed to try and free them.
1: Oh, that's right. And a whale could uh, move quite quickly too when they get going. You know, the flailing whale is quite something. But, uh, you know, it was just a story. It's always, in fact, it was the inspiration for me to find out a bit more about these whale stories that I'm talking about today. But I thought I'd leave it till last, Graham, to just, you know, is it true? Has anyone heard this before? Well, there, we've asked
0: if you want to get in touch uh, you can do it on the Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page I'll forward it on to Gerard. Um, Jared, is there any preferred way you would like to
1: do that? Oh no anyone can contact me through uh, through you that's fabulous.
0: Okay email forms on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage as well probably the easiest way or if you prefer don't hold back from writing something down and putting it in the mail it gets here eventually <laughs> Box 880, Simon Street, S-Y-M-O-N-D-S, Simon Street, Auckland, and it will arrive in the inbox here. So take your pick, and if you know anything about these, um, maybe even if you've just heard the same tale, it might, I don't know, give us an idea of how widespread it is, even if it doesn't help us with its veracity. But it would be interesting to find out. That's a fascinating story.
1: Yeah, it is. It uh, quite tickled me, actually.
0: All right, Whale Tales, Jared Hindmarsh's Outsiders this week. Thank you very much. Cheers,
1: Graham. Good one.